to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. Today, I have the distinguished honor of having former Senator Jim Webb on the program. Jim Webb, a Vietnam Marine combat veteran, former Senator and former Secretary of the Navy, is a national security and foreign policy specialist and the author of 10 books. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Webb served as counsel to the House Committee on Veterans Affairs and led the fight to include an African-American soldier in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial on the National Mall. By the mid-1980s, he was appointed Assistant Secretary of Defense for Reserve Affairs and in 1987 became Secretary of the Navy, the first Naval Academy graduate with military service to do so. While in the Senate, he wrote, introduced, and guided to passage the post-9-11 GI Bill, the most significant veterans legislation since World War II. Having wildly traveled to Asia for decades as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's Asia-Pacific Subcommittee, he was the leading voice in calling for the U.S. to re-engage in East Asia and met frequently with key national leaders throughout the region. He conceived and carried out the process that resulted in opening up Burma to the outside world and in 2009 was the first American leader to be allowed entry into Burma in 10 years, a historic visit that resulted in the reestablishment of relations between the two countries. In addition to his public service, Webb has enjoyed a varied career as a writer. His commentaries on national security, foreign relations, and domestic issues have been published in a wide range of major national magazines and newspapers. Traveling widely as a journalist, he received a National Emmy Award for his PBS coverage of U.S. Marines in Beirut in 1983 and in 2004 was embedded with the U.S. military in Afghanistan. He wrote the story and was executive producer of the film Rules of Engagement that topped U.S. box offices in the early April of 2000. His books include Fields of Fire, widely recognized as the classic novel of the Vietnam War, and Born Fighting, a sweeping history of the Scots-Irish culture that Tom Wolfe named the most important ethnography in recent American history. Webb graduated from the Naval Academy in 1968, receiving a special commendation for his leadership contributions. First in his class of 243 at the Marine Corps Officers Basic School, he served as a rifle platoon and company commander in Vietnam and was awarded the Navy Cross, the Silver Star Medal, two Bronze Star Medals, and two Purple Hearts. He graduated from Georgetown University Law Center in 1975, having received the Horan Award for Excellence in Legal Writing. Webb taught literature at the Naval Academy, was a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics, and in 2014 was awarded the University of Virginia's Thomas Jefferson Award for Citizen Leadership, its highest recognition for public service. Well, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> Good to be with you. So um, it's fantastic to be able to meet you in person and chat with you in person. And thank you for coming out last night to UVA Wise to give a talk. Well, really, uh, my, my wife, Holly, and I both appreciated you know, being invited to come down here and to, to meet with a lot of the students and to talk about uh, different things. So. Yeah, they really enjoyed it, especially talking about going to law school with your wife and then your book last night. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you, you were a senator for a short time, for the six years six you were there. Six years is not a short time. I know, well. Six years is a term and a half the president. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, I have a lot of students who've thought about running before, and 
I wondered if you might reflect back on that decision, the initial decision to run. What was it that really made you want to throw your hat in the ring that time? Well, first of all, if you look at um, my career, it's been a like a bifurcated career since I left the Marine Corps. It's a two-track career, ac- accidentally became a two-track career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, wounded in Vietnam. I was in another hospital for a couple of years. I, I went to law school uh, just to try to figure out what civilians do, by the way, <laughs> coming from the Marine Corps. But in a, it was a time of a lot of turmoil in the country and just to sort of you know, figure out my value systems and how to think in a different way. And at that time, you know, I started writing. Um, I, I wrote a, a book when I was uh, after the, my first year in law school on our strategy in the Pacific, and uh, I won a legal writing award at, at Georgetown Law on representing a, a so-called war criminal. I uh, started rep, uh, six years of pro bono representation with this uh, this uh, young Marine who's uh, uh, I think wrongly committed, uh, uh, convicted of. Uh, uh, situation, uh, very bad situation, represented him for six years. Um, so from that point, you know, I had been raised to be a leader. And I've always, I always had loved literature, you know, as a, you know, as an escape from the engineering program at the Naval Academy and, and those sorts of things. And, and so I, I started this two-track career where I would write for a while and as a friend of mine said, people to pay me to indulge my curiosities to go around the world, you know, if I could sell an idea as a, uh, as a magazine article or whatever, and, and writing books, which I love. Uh, and then I would miss running things. And for me, running things really is public service. You know, I've done it four different times, first as a Marine, and then as a committee counsel in the House, and then going into the Reagan administration as a first as an assistant secretary of defense and then a secretary of the Navy. And, and so, you know, it, a lot of it depended on what was going on in the country and a lot of it depended on what kind of a break I wanted to take, you know, after I would be writing for a while. And when I, um, when I was in Beirut as a journalist in 1983 with the Marines, um, I had been doing a lot of really great journalism and um, then the building blew up and 241 Marines and support personnel, more than 220 Marines, died in one day. And I had known a lot of them. Some of them lived from Vietnam service and others for, for having been around them a lot. And I just decided to myself, I need to put my oar in the water again and, uh, and, and get in and try to solve problems rather than talking about them and writing about them. And that's when I went into the Reagan administration. And then after I had had uh, four years to the day, actually, not intentionally, in the Reagan administration, I went back out and started doing a, a lot of uh, business uh, representation for companies that wanted to go into Southeast Asia and writing um, uh, books and doing journalism and doing film. Uh, and then when the, uh, after 9-11, when the response to 9-11 was that from the, the uh, George W. Bush administration was that we now needed to invade Iraq, which I just thought was absolutely uh, you know, a huge strategic blunder. Uh, I had I had written an article for the Washington Post five months before the invasion. I wrote the first uh, article in a major newspaper saying, listen, do you really want to be over there for the next 20 years? 
uh, and, and this, if you if we go in, there is no exit strategy because they don't intend to leave. And um, I lost some friends for this piece, you know, military folks who, you know, we, we have memories of how when we were trying to fight in Vietnam, we were being sort of undercut by, by irresponsible comments about what we're trying to do. Um, but I felt really strongly about it. And I watched some of the other uh, activities in the, in the George W. Bush administration, even though I'd been in the Reagan administration, about domestic issues and these sorts of things. And so it just came to a point um, when the 06 elections started to uh, evolve here in Virginia, I just said, you know, I, I think I need to put my oar in water again. I, I think if I feel this strongly about these issues that I have this background, I need to put that out there. And uh, I was running against a, you know, a very powerful incumbent, uh, and I had a, uh, uh, had a contested primary as well. Uh, and, but I just decided I'm going I'm to put these issues out there, um, my major issues, when I decided to run were national security policy, uh, you know, economic fairness in this country, uh, and how administrations are supposed to work, how the government is supposed to work, and uh, along the way, criminal justice reform. I started talking about the, the, the problems uh, in our criminal justice system while I was on the campaign trail, and my, my advisors, the, uh, the Democrat uh, advisors um, were saying, don't talk about it. It's political suicide in Virginia to say that we have a over-incarceration problem, mass incarceration problem. I said, how can you not talk about it? You know, it's not a political issue. It's a leadership issue. And it was amazing to me. Everywhere I went, I would talk about, you know, we, you know, we have to find better ways to do this. I had been um, a journalist in Japan. I was the first American journalist allowed to report from inside their prison system in 1983. Uh, and uh, looking at their system uh, and comparing it to ours, I, I was just amazed at how effective their system was. Uh, they were solving a great majority of their crimes, but they were not locking people up for long periods of time. Their approach really was to solve the crime rather than you catch a, a small percentage of people and put them away for a long time and, and create you know, career criminals. And, um, so I, I started off nine months to, to the day before the election. I, I made the announcement. I'd been talking for a couple of months with the political consultants about this, but I made the announcement. I had uh, no campaign staff and no money, zero money, and a contested primary who was basically saying, this is a Reagan guy. What do you think he's running as a, a Democrat? And the first call I made was to um, one of my former radio operators who had his arm blown off, uh, had a tattoo on it called, cut on dotted line and was the night manager of Tootsie's Orchid Lounge in Nashville, Tennessee. And I said, Mac, <laughs> I need your help. You know, I need you to come here. I need you to come to be my driver. I need somebody that I can trust 24 hours a day and talk about things and, you know, and keep me, keep me on track here because this is hard stuff. You know, he quit his job and, you know, moved into a, a bedroom in our basement for a year and, and away we went. We'd get in this old Jeep and drive around and meet with people every night, maybe three, three meetings a night, go to places where maybe there's 20 people, maybe there's 100 people, and take questions. And, you know, it, it, it just started a buzz. Uh, and we ended up with 14,000 volunteers. And that's how we won. I was 33 points behind when I announced. Uh, but being consistent, 
with these issues, focusing on, you can, from, from those issues that I mentioned, you can go a lot of different ways in talking about solving the problems and, and where they really are. And I think the consistency and, and uh, sort of the, the way that we, we approached this was how we won. So looking back on your time in the Senate, is there something that you would say, like, this is your biggest accomplishment or something you're the most proud of? What would be the issue? You know, it's funny because when I, I, you know, I was raised as a leader, to be a leader. And what do, lead, what do leaders do? They motivate people. Okay? And so the first uh, thing that I needed to do and wanted to do was to put together an incredibly talented staff and to enable you know, to work them hard, as hard as I work, and to enable their futures. And my uh, my chief of staff, uh, who I, I, I took a great you know great deal of pain to get the right person that I would work with that had the background, Paul Reagan, uh, had had worked on, on many different staffs in in Virginia. He knew all of the Democrats in Virginia, um, and it was just a perfect match because you know he he was the you know, the go-to person whenever we needed to go anywhere. And he was just a great person to work with. And um, he asked me uh, shortly after uh, I was sworn in, the first day I was sworn in, I, I introduced the post-9-11 GI Bill, which I had felt strongly about for years, even before I, I, I uh, decided to run. But Paul said, um, we need to pick your legacy program. What 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 is going to be your legacy program? You know, it's going to be a highway, going to be a bridge, going to be the... The GI Bill, I said, no, my legacy program is my people. And it is. I have this thing um, I like to call the oil slick theory, you know, where you get good people and, and you take care of them. Every single person that came on my staff, even, you know, someone all the way down here in Norton who was going to do a, a one-room one uh, uh, office for us had to come to, to D.C. We put her up. She, she came in, met the staff, she came in and had a meeting with me, and she knew that she was valued, and, and she knew that she knew me. Um, every single person on our staff we did that with. And I look now, after, uh, after the time that I left, and I see people from my staff popping up everywhere, and they always talk about it. You know, I got, a, I got an email two or three days ago from... Uh, uh, Jessica Smith, who was my communications director, and talking about, you know, what that what it was like then and what it could become, you know, in other places where she'd worked and all that. So that was my number one thing, and it's working. It's the oil slick theory. You know, you get good people out there, you train them le a le approach to leadership, and then they take that out, and that goes out, and uh, pretty soon you, know, you got something going. I like that. <laughs> so we've talked a little now about your kind of your biggest success what were what's one of the biggest challenges you faced once you got to the Senate was okay so I talk a lot in my classes in Congress about polarization and you were there kind of as that process was becoming I mean there, there was there was a building polarization in Congress was that a was that an issue for you I mean you you're in my opinion someone who would be very moderate between the two parties so how well, I worked for both you? parties, and I, I was open to doing that. And I had some Republicans who were angry because I'd been in the Reagan administration, and I was a, a Democrat, you know, in in, uh, in the political sense. Um, Larry Sabato at, at UVA wrote that I was the most apolitical senator he had ever met. You know, for me, it was leadership, solving problems, and 
and bringing people together. What, what, what I did the, uh, and by program, by the way, in terms of foreign policy and these sorts of things, I'm an Asia guy. I spent a lot of time in, in Asia as a journalist, uh, heavily in, in Japan, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Philippines, some of the Philippines. Um, and I'd been to Burma as a private citizen in uh, 01, made an extended visit there after I'd written an article and, and I was invited in by an American businessman. Um, and uh, I wanted to change the formula in Burma at that time. So I put my, my foreign policy staff together um, and, and I, I, the people, I got really good people, really motivated people. And I said to them, we are going, this is what we're going to do. I want, to, I want to get on the, the Asia-Pacific subcommittee, and I became some chairman of it in two years. Uh, and we are going to strengthen our relationship in, in, uh, in, uh, in South Korea, in Japan, in Vietnam, uh, which was a you know, very interesting dynamic, uh, in uh, Thailand, in Singapore, uh, the ASEAN countries, and we are going to change the formula in Burma. We are going to do it here, not on the committee staff. We're going to do it from our office to the committee staff. And we got to move in. And I would spend um, three different trips a year in, into uh, East Asia uh, during the, the, the uh, Senate breaks. And in those, like, usually two weeks, you know, there are a lot of people who go over there and want to do, you know, go to some casino in Hong Kong, you know. Um, we would go, I would go to three different countries, in, in two weeks, and it was all meetings. And we're doing this, you know, we don't have the, the you know, the, the big plane that you know, the Secretary of State has. And we were counting at one point, I think we, we went into 25 different uh, exits and entrances at airports in two weeks, you know, to get out and, and meet with the, the you know, the, the top foreign policy people in these different, uh, different countries. And we did a lot of good on that. Um, and with the GI Bill, um, I wrote it with, uh, with our, uh, you know, the, the regular lawyers who do the, the verbiage on the, on the bills. I've been a committee counsel on the Veterans Committee. I knew the World War II uh, GI Bill very well. Uh, I introduced it the first day. Harry Reid, our majority leader, was very supportive of this. We pushed it, and I developed a leadership team. To your question... Um, I wanted I wanted this to be a bipartisan piece of legislation. Um, I got a lot of flack at the very beginning on the on the uh, GI Bill because they were saying, "Well, you got you got one week in the Senate and you're putting together this omnibus big uh, veterans program, and I have this one over here and over here and over here." And uh, I'd have the the veterans and uh, associations come in and they would say, "Don't you think this is too much?" And I said, "This is the only way you're going to be able to do it. Keep keep it you know big." And uh, so I, and then I went out to uh, uh, Senator, Senator John Warner and Senator Chuck Hagel, two Republicans, one a Vietnam veteran, one a, a World War II veteran, and Frank Lautenberg of, uh, uh, of New Jersey, a Democrat who was a World War II veteran. And so we developed this nucleus in terms of working inside the, the Senate, two Republicans, two Democrats, two World War II veterans, uh, two Vietnam veterans. And that was extremely effective. We had uh, opposition from the administration because, you know, they were, they were saying that the people coming over were talking about how this was going to affect retention in the military because the bill was so generous. We want to do the same thing they did for the World War II veterans. Why not? You know, uh, the Vietnam veterans didn't have that. And you know, pay their tuition, buy their books, give them a stipend, and, and give them a future. And it 
in, in miraculous, not miraculously, but I mean, it just in, in terms of how effective I think the model was and what we were saying was, uh, we got that passed in 16 months. And it was almost unheard of these days to get a major piece of legislation done in 16 months. So we were doing uh, the foreign policy stuff. East Asia focused heavily on it. Uh, so in so many ways is, is the future of economic systems and, and, and the dangers in terms of the volatility of uh, some of the relationships out there. Get the, get the GI Bill in place. It was on Armed Services Committee doing stuff on Iraq, Afghanistan, and that sort of thing. And then working on criminal justice reform. And my, I, I was able, I was on the Joint Economic Committee, which is not a legislative committee, but it's a great committee to be on for oversight. And I could, I could hold oversight hearings as long as I designed them and, and arranged for the, uh, the witnesses to come in. I could do pretty much whatever I wanted on it. And I spent two years um, having hearings on the criminal justice issue and in a, in a lot of different ways. And you know, because it's an economic committee, we got to do a, do a hearing on what are the, what are the economic uh, implications of mass incarceration? What are the economic implications of, of the drug problem that we have? You know, and we got tremendous uh, uh, representations and witnesses and these sorts of things. And after two years, you know, I, I wanted to do this because I'm a writer. You know, not many writers work inside you know the the the, the, the uh, congressional process. And, and when you're a writer, you do your research, and then you write the book, and you had an end. You know, you have mm -hmm. a goal. Yeah? And uh, rather than just, you know, okay, here's a guy, you know, Webb says we got a bad problem, and then five years from now, Webb still says we got a bad problem, you know. And so after two years, I got my uh, my, my uh, people who have been working on this, some terrific uh, people, very passionate about getting this solved in, in the right way. Uh, you, know, we, you know, we're not saying let... let Everybody who's a you know a bad person out easy. We're saying let's focus this. You know, let's focus this on who really needs to be incarcerated rather than other programs, and if so, how long and how do you work your reentry programs and those sorts of things. So we had all the data, all the stuff we talked about, and 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 it's a really interesting uh, uh, conversations coming out of the the hearings. Uh, um, we did a, a one uh, off off-campus uh, hearing at George Mason Law School um, with uh, on the drugs issue, and we had people who felt really strongly about it on both sides. And And we started this, it was supposed to be like a couple hours, and uh, the, uh, the Alan Burtons, who was the president of uh, George Mason, came, he was going to come over and bless this thing after two hours, and he walked in, and they were still going, they were still going, and we finally had to say, you know, like around, okay, it's lunchtime, guys, we got to stop, this has been great. You know? <laughs> Uh, and so I said, all right, the best way to do this really is to create uh, a, a national commission on criminal justice and bring in the smartest minds uh, in the country that haven't done this in 50 years and, and, and task them with giving us reports on all these issues that I just mentioned. Well, apprehension, uh, what do you do? How do you decide where, you know, where that person should, should uh, go and, you know, and, uh, incarceration. What you know? What you know? What are the uh, the length, the, the appropriate lengths of, of time for incarceration? You know, solving the solving the problems. Prison administration inside. Um, you know, what are the training mechanisms in Japan? When I when I did the uh, the uh, journalistic uh, uh, story in, in 1983, there. 
uh, prison administration system was very similar to the quality that we require in our military. Uh, if someone had to take a national test uh, to get into the program, and it was a year of, of teaching, um, you know, counseling, um, you know, discipline, uh, and, um, you know, the, all these sorts of things that gave a standardization inside their, their prison system. And I, actually, I had started um, the, the article in, in Japan because I met, um, met a guy who had been in prison in Japan uh, and also had been in prison here. And I, he, and I was on my way to Japan when I was, when I was meeting with him and, 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 uh, on, a, on a space available military flight, which I could do because I, I have a gray ID card after I was wounded. So we were sitting there in a terminal trying to figure out when a cargo plane was going to pick us up. And we talked about this for like two days, but he's talked about the evil, you know, how horrible it was to be in jail in Japan, you know, how harsh it was and sitting in his room, he had a camera on him for, for uh, uh, 20 months and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, man, that's terrible. He goes, no, I, I, want, I want you to know something. If I got to go to jail again, I want to go to Japan. And I said, why? And, and he said, well, they gave me a short sentence. The, you know, the Americans had, had a, got picked up with two kilos of marijuana on a street corner. You know, and the Americans wanted me to get five years. They gave me two years. They stuck with it. Uh, he said, I never had to worry about another inmate coming after me, and I never had to worry about a guard coming after me. He said, I said more, shed more than one tear when I said goodbye to my guard. And I went, wow, there's a story here. And that's how I sold the story, you know. So we were putting, you know, prison administration and reentry programs, et cetera, and um, then we went out and, and started talking to all of the uh, lobbying organizations and the, and the uh, you know, the, the organizations that focused on the criminal justice issues. And we got a buy-in from all across the spectrum with the legislation. We, 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 we put the legislation together. I put it in. Um, and we got a buy-in from, I mean, all the way from, uh, you know, the the, the the ACLU, the uh, marijuana, whatever they call them, that I don't remember now, all the way over to uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice, the ABA, people wanted this. They wanted to have this uh, this commission, and from the commission, we could have worked toward um, a solution. And then what happened was, um, we in the middle, when, when, when the Congress really started to get paralyzed, moving toward the 12 election, uh, the, you know, the, the, the Republicans um, shut down major legislation. And um, so we finally, we finally brought it up uh, on, the, on the floor. Harry Reid was a big supporter of it. And we had a, I, had a, I had bipartisan support. Um, I had uh, four prominent Republicans, uh, Orrin Hatch being one of them, um, who were co-sponsors to the bill. Lindsey Graham was another one. Um, and... Uh, so we brought it up, and the order from the Republican caucus was to was to filibuster this thing, not to vote for it. And I'm one of the great moments of the time I was in the Senate. Uh, by the way, we ended up with uh, 56 votes twice, and we needed 60. But a majority of the Senate wanted to do this, and it actually worked at the same time on the House side. You know, you you do you're teaching the Congress worked on the House side to get an exactly com a compi compatible bill, piece of legislation. So if ours passed and theirs passed, boom, it was a law. Uh, and so we actually accomplished that on the House side. 
International Association of Chiefs of Police had given this the strongest endorsement. They had held a press conference. I came, Orrin Hatch came with me, um, you know, you know, very prominent conservative uh, Republican. And I'm real thinker. I really had a lot of admiration for to, to that press conference. Um, and then it comes up the day of the vote, and Orrin Hatch comes over to me on the floor, and he says, look, he says, I know I'm a co-sponsor, but, you know, this is a procedural vote, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I'm supposed to really align myself with the party. He said, but if you really want me to, to vote with this, I will. I said, Oren, I really want you to do this. <laughs> and he goes, okay. <laughs> and so he voted. I think, uh, I think all four of them, uh, the, the co-sponsors voted for them. So, um, you know, those were the sorts of things that we were doing. Those, that's where how we were doing them. So I know that we've talked the last couple of days about changes that could happen with Congress. You know, my students sometimes think, if we just were to term limit people, right, it would get better. And I explained to them, that's not what the research says. Or, um, you know, something about the way in which legislation gets passed. You just mentioned filibustering. If you could wave a magic wand to kind of help the policymaking process in the Senate or House, Congress in general, would it be the filibuster? No, it wouldn't. And you need to, I mean, I, I spent four years with a couple of breaks, but four years as full committee counsel on the House side, we put 25 bills a year through the House floor. The House is a different machine. You know, it's, it's, it's a, the whole process is different, you know, as a lot, a lot of people will, will say, you know, the House is, is uh, more uh, f- fixed on uh, short-term issues, you know, that, you know, that, that the, the temperament of the country at a specific period of time. The Senate, by the design of the, uh, the election process, you know, every two years you get a third of the Senate goes to, to uh, uh, in, through the election cycle and the filibuster um, uh, that it's it's designed to cool things down. When when I I think I've did a lot of thinking about this because when I was in the house working in the house, I was you know I, I was sort of neutral on the filibuster. Uh, but you know it there are some things in the heat of passion that that you would do that would could become permanent that were are not the good things to do. You know, and so as complicated as it is. Um, the uh, I think the filibuster gives us uh, you know some stability in the political process. The criticism that I would have, or the, the frustration that I had in the Senate, was that because of pr- procedural aspects, not not just the filibuster, but the the uh, notion that any one senator can object to bringing a, a piece of legislation up, um, it it really stalls uh, good legislating. Uh, and, and what happens is you then end up with fewer pieces of major legislation, but they're huge. They're omnibus bills, and, and there, there are, you know, things in, in the bills that you would not like, uh, but if, there's, if it's 50.1% of what you believe needs to happen, you vote for it, and then in the process, you know, it, the whole thing gets sort of, Obfuscated about what what did what did this person really support? You know, look look at look at what you know senator or whatever voted on. They voted on this you know this terrible thing, and um, that's a process that could be fixed by the leadership. 
you know, uh, the, the notion that one senator can say, I object, you know, and here you go, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Or the other thing that they can do, well, actually with that process, um, simple things like if they want to stall the system, um, like judicial nominations, um, some of them could be, you know, understandably controversial. I don't have a problem with it. But easy ones, like we had, a, we had one with a, um, a, a judge from Virginia who, and um, I, I'm apologizing, let me, please, let me just say a judge from Virginia, uh, who was an easy 99 votes, and uh, just to stall the system, you know, we'd bring it up, uh, and then somebody would object, and then you have to kill like 24 hours uh, of debate uh, to know you're going to get a 99 votes. Those sorts of things are, uh, and the other thing about the, the Congress right now I've had an interesting way to be able to view the processes in the in the uh, in the Congress because I I was involved in three separate periods uh, with intervals doing these other things so you can kind of it's much easier to compare when you have time in between you know I, I was a committee counsel for four years and then I came back four years later and I was in the Pentagon for four years and then I came back after that an interval when I was in the Senate and. The, the way that money affects everything, um, and not just fundraising, but how the, the tempo of, of the Congress works. Uh, it used to be, it was a five-day work week, you know, for the, for the members um, when I was in the, uh, working in the House, you know. And then by the time I got to the Senate, they would count Monday as a, as a work day because it would, 5.30, they get a 5.30 vote. Monday afternoon for the, you know, for the people to come back, and then there wouldn't be any work on on Friday because they had to go. You know, they they had to go back to their districts. On the one hand, it's good to go back to your districts, but they're going back there, or they're doing fundraisers, or they're somewhere else, and so your work week gets just squeezed into Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And you know, there were times I was on four different committees, and there were times that I would have, uh, you know, hearings on all four committees at the same time. Um, and you know, and you got to go. Okay, now which one do am I going to go to? And, and I had incredible staff work on this stuff. Where every hearing that we had, a staffer had to put a briefing book together on. Uh, so I could say, all right, to, you know, my Veterans Affairs staffer, here's the book. Go, you know, give me a memo when when you're done. But you know, that's that hurts the validity of the process, and it also hurts the ability of members to really get to know each other. And to socialize in a way that so much, you know, good stuff can happen. They're just like, okay, I'm in here, boom, boom, boom. Okay, I'm gone. See you guys later. I think that's probably true as well for the omnibus bills. A lot of those bills are so large that it's hard to even understand everything that's in them. Oh, yeah. And and um, on a lot of these appropriations bills, uh, not just appropriations bills, but especially um, the... Uh, the leadership of both sides goes into a back room and, you know, you're voting for, you know, for money and you wait and you wait and you wait and you, wait and you, you don't get a chance even to read. Um, you know, and you get something like the, uh, the, the what they call the, the Obama medical bill, uh, the Affordable uh, Care Act. It was a couple thousand pages uh, and there were five different com- congressional committees that had you know, you know, different findings on these things, and uh, it was just an absolute mess. Uh, and I, yeah, 
I was very tempted to vote against it, but I would have, if I'd have voted against it, I'd have been the only Democrat to vote against it, and it, and, uh, it wouldn't have been helpful, frankly. Um, um, so I, I basically, I was thinking, like, to give you a, a weird comparison, um, at the end of World War II, the Japanese knew they had lost the war in 1944, but if they had if they had said, "Okay, we've lost," that they 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 worried that the Japanese people would have some really kind of not a rebellion, but they, you know, they would really the the credibility of the leadership and of the emperor would be affected. So they said, "Okay, we're just going to have to keep going until it's clear, until the people are begging, you know, the you know for for the war to end, you know." And, I, I looked. That's, I, 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 when I got up to vote on this thing, I said, you know, that's really what this is. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and vote for it. I'm gonna take heat for it, and then, you know, down the road, you know, there, there's gonna be an understanding of where this thing is bad. Mm-hmm. Then we have to do something to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, I think we were talking about the other day, is term limits. And I don't think term limits work. I like the idea that you know you have, you know. You know, like for the, the, the Senate was supposed to be a place where, you know, people with a lot of different experience could come in and, you know, and bring the, bring the views of the, the country to the Senate, you know. And, and it's become, in, in many cases, a place where people want to stay for 25 or 30 years. And, and you know, it's some, for some that's good, but, but you know, giving you, know, you, give you a term limit it takes away from the electoral process. If you don't like the person... Vote them out. I mean, uh, the the, uh, the price that people now see they might pay for running is pretty high with all of the nastiness and and uh, digital media stuff and all the rest of that. But still, if you want to if you want to change the country, you need to get good people to run. So, if you were giving advice right now to my students who would like to run, what is one thing you would say? Do this to kind of get yourself ready to run. If you want to run. People come to the to the Congress from a lot of different uh, experiential sets, you know, and, uh, and I think that's healthy. I really do. I, you know, I think you know when you have when you have a, a, a different professional in, uh, life, a different personal experience, um, that that that's what American democracy is all about. You know, you bring different viewpoints and you have discussions and you learn things, um, but. Uh, understand the political process, understand what you're going to get into, and it's so easy to say, all right, I'm run. You know, and of course, I did that. But I did it. <laughs> I did it after thinking about it for a very long time. Right. It just, uh, I, you know, I was like, okay, if I don't do this by February the 9th, you know, anything right. will happen, you know, I'm not going to do it. Like, okay. But, uh, uh, and understand that when you, when you run for office, a friend of mine told me this, um, Right before I ran, he said, you, you know, it's never going to be the same for you. You know, when you're out there like that, people love, you know, they have an opinion. And I, I've, I've often said there's there's two things that uh, like 90% of the people I, I know think they could do. One is run for office and the other is write a book, you know, and both of those are really hard. <laughs> so just understand that if you want to run. Yeah, and understand that there's going to be a portion of the population that's unhappy with you yeah, all the time. You got you you have to accept that, you know. And that's yeah. what I like to say about Virginia is just so different, you know, diverse, you know, uh, demographically, geographically, economically, etc. 
you know, you have to you have to trust yourself and stay with what you believe because I, I, I like I said, I could get up in the morning on some of these things, 45% of the people in, in the state of the Commonwealth of Virginia would be mad at me and the other 55% were saying, hey, way to go, you know? Um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for joining me today. Oh, no, I enjoyed it. The program. Uh, it was great to talk with you. Thanks to everyone for listening. Um, if you missed any piece of this, you can catch up on podcast anytime. And the show comes on at 6 o'clock on Thursdays, 1 o'clock on Sundays on WEHC 90.7. Also over at Wise FM. So have a great rest of your weekend.